Good morning. You heard the word read this morning, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Should I just give the dismissal now? Or might you say, that's a hard teaching. I'd like some explanation, please. I'm going to ask my students, either my current students or been students in the past, would you please stand? Would you put your arms out, put them towards me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we declare to you it's a hard word. So I'd ask that you would bring clarity to what it says. Open our eyes that we might see, open our ears that we might hear what your heartbeat is like. Speak, Lord, for your children are listening. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks. Hey, I, I give a shout out to all of you that are visitors here at IWU. This is our family gathering. We gather three times a week here. So those of you in the music program that are visiting, thanks for being here. Um, and just... My name is Dave Smith. I teach in the School of Theology and Ministry. And somehow I picked the short straw on the hardest passage of Scripture in the Bible. But I hope we're up to it today. Uh, a few weeks ago, we began Bible Monday with Jake preaching on the, the Beatitudes. And he made a statement that was so wonderful because this is what the Sermon on the Mount does. It turns the world right side up. Now, most of the time, what we do is we talk about Jesus shaking up the world. I beg to differ. He is showing us what the kingdom actually looks like, and he's helping us to have discerning eyes to be able to see with the eyes that he sees with. And then Absalom Joseph came and preached on another difficult passage in the Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's a tough place. And then I am following suit on this sixfold back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. You have heard it said, do not commit murder. But I say to you, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you've already committed murder. You have heard it said, Old Testament, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you have looked upon a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery. This sixfold back and forth goes on until we come to this climactic passage. You have heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then Jesus calls us in these words, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I pray that we might be able to have eyes to see what Jesus is clearly talking about. I may be the only person in this sanctuary this morning that hasn't seen the movie Frozen. Now, I, I will tell you, I don't need to see it because I have two granddaughters that dress up like Anna and Elsa 
all the time. And I get the great joy of being able to play make-believe with them. I'm never quite sure which one they are because I haven't seen the movie. And when I call them out by name, I'll, I'll call out, Ellie, who are you? And she shakes her head and says, Granddaddy, I am not Ellie, I am Anna. When, when you play make-believe, you believe you are other than who you are. Could I tell you that make-believe is not a children's game? It is a requirement for entrance into the kingdom. You are more than you think you are. And Jesus is declaring that. I would not be surprised when you heard the, the, the worship team reading the scripture and they in one voice, in a triune way, wasn't that wonderful? One voice in a triune way declared this, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect you probably said, no way. Be careful what you tell Jesus is impossible. Because if you declare to him something is impossible, for you it will become impossible. Maybe the question to ask is, Jesus, what precisely are you telling me is a possibility if I actually lean into the reality that you can see? He is not playing make-believe. He is asking you to stretch your Christian imagination to include the truth of the kingdom. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never certainly be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you, but when I hear that passage read, it's almost like there's a hyperlink to take me back to another place another place in the Old Testament, another place in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, where no longer are we able to be in the presence of God. Genesis chapter 3. Hear the end of Genesis chapter 3. And so the Lord God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken, banished them from the garden. You may hear that as a curse. You may hear that as uh, Jesus and the Father being a bit exclusive on who he wants. But I actually think the banishment from the garden is actually a blessing that Jesus and the Father give. Here's my point. You know from the teachings of the Old Testament that no one can stand and see God face to face and live. Here becomes the problem. Something is bigger in the life of Adam and Eve than merely the fact that they ate a piece of forbidden fruit. Something is at work there that's much more sinister and deep than just simple misdeeds that they've done in the garden. Their broken humanity. And they cannot stand before God and live. And so God, in his loving providence, sends them out of the garden because the garden would be a place of their destruction rather than of their benefit. The same thing is said 
in the Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes or Pharisees, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of God. Do you know why? Because if you entered in unprepared, if you entered in without the proper preparation, the presence of God would destroy you. Even something worse, could you imagine actually getting to heaven and not liking it? Because you were unprepared to be a servant. Instead, you want to be a master. Genesis chapter 3. Before we talk about a cure for what's broken, you really need to know how you are broken. Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 are these wonderful twofold, if you will, wedding ceremonies that take place. And you're going to be surprised when you see Genesis chapter 3 as a wedding. Genesis chapter 2. And God comes and forms Adam out of the dust of the earth and he breathes on him. Your NIV, your King James, will probably actually say breathed into his nose, but that's not the word there. He breathed into his face. God actually saw Adam face to face, and it says, and Adam became a living creature. God entered Adam, and the two, God and Adam, became one. I declare to you, before the wedding of Adam and Eve, there was actually a wedding of man and God, and the two became one. Yes, Eden is the best place for a destination wedding. <laughs> and then God takes the one, Adam, takes the rib out, it becomes two, and then God brings Adam and Eve together, and the two once again become one. Genesis chapter 2 is actually two weddings, first of God and humanity, and second of man to woman. And then Genesis chapter 3 reads this way. Now the serpent, who was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Hear that, the phrase, Lord God had made. In Genesis 2, God is known as Yahweh Elohim, all the way through, Yahweh Elohim. Um, students, those of, those of you who had me for a class, shout out, what is my name? Say it louder. Dave. Dave. Uh, for those of you that are visitors on campus, know that the calling of professors by first name is not the norm. But if you take me for a class, I give you utter permission to call me Dave. Now, for the rest of you that haven't had me for a class, if I'm walking across uh, uh, campus or walking into Baldwin, you do not have permission to call me Dave. You must be given permission for that. God gives Adam and Eve permission to know of him as Yahweh. Listen carefully as the evil one comes and speaks to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? He's not calling him Yahweh. The evil one is not trying to trick Adam and Eve that God doesn't exist. They just want to have, or he just simply wants them to question his character and his goodness. 
Did God really say? And for the first time ever, there was an emotional affair that Eve had with Satan. She began to turn her heart towards another. This, my friends, is the first divorce papers filed in the history of the world as Eve and Adam choose no longer to be married to Yahweh Elohim, but instead to be married and uh, follow after the way of the great liar. Do you hear it? Genesis chapter 2, two weddings, God to man, man to woman. Wedding number two in the garden is actually man and woman realigning their covenant relationship no longer with Yahweh, but now with the evil one. Because they want to be able to discern the difference between good and evil without knowing God. When you heard the text read originally, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, you probably said, that can't be possible because I do bad things. I beg to differ. You are a bad person. You are aligned with the wrong person. You are not aligned with Yahweh Elohim. You are aligned with the one that has caused you to divorce your first love and go with another. I can take you to a passage of Scripture in the New Testament that confirms that. When Jesus, halfway through the Gospel of Mark, asks his disciples this question, who do people say that I am? The disciples cry out. Some say Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Some say one of the prophets. But then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter is the first one to always speak. He cries out, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, shh, don't tell anyone that story. Because Peter believes that his understanding of the Messiah is, you will come to destroy all of my enemies. You will destroy the Romans, cast them out of the land, and reassert us to our proper place of, hear this word, power. And Jesus says this, get behind me, Satan. Because you do not have in mind the things of God. Rather, you have aligned your mind with human beings who are wedded to Satan. Do you hear it? You've got quiet all of a sudden. You don't just do misdeeds. You're aligned with the wrong person. You might ask the question, so why don't you just forgive me of my sins? That's not enough. Being merely forgiven of your sins does not keep you from being a sinner. It just forgives you. Last time I checked, the Old Testament has all kinds of rituals to be able to forgive you of your sins. He would be giving you what you already have. He's not giving you what you want. Jesus is giving you precisely what you need. You need 
to die. I apologize for that, especially for visitors on campus. That's not usually something we talk about a lot, but friends, students, you need to hunger after death because you have aligned yourself with death, not the giver of life. You must die. Can I um, apologize to all of the students in the School of Theology and Ministry? This is a strange apology too, so visitors, please just forget um, some of the things that I'm saying because this will sound very strange. We often teach you how to be a good pastor, how to be a good caregiver, how to be a good shepherd. We teach you that when somebody's hurting, how can I help them to feel better? And if you are hurting and broken, what you probably need to do is to die. We teach too often people how to give CPR and bring people back to life. We need to train you to be a priest and to be able to de declare last rites. You have died unto sin, now arise to everlasting life. Am I making sense? This is the call of Jesus. And he passes that on to the Apostle Paul. Please listen carefully to the words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. For as, hear me carefully, in Adam all die, in Christ all shall live. Listen to Romans chapter 6. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death? We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live to a new life. Baptism. At times we can domesticate baptism. I don't know that you realize in the ancient church when people were being baptized, almost always they were chosen to be baptized on Easter Sunday. And the baptism began this way, as the candidate would turn to the west, and the west is where the sun set and where darkness first appeared, you would turn to the west and you would renounce the work of the evil one. Then you would turn to the east and appropriate the grace that Christ has given to you in being buried into his death and raised into life. We forget that we are actually, before meeting Jesus, wedded to death. And you are now being asked to be raised to everlasting life. Do you hear the difference between the two? I'm not asking if, if Christ can forgive your sins. Of course he can. I'm asking whether or not if all you're asking him to do is to forgive your sins, you're actually settling for second best in the kingdom. You may ask for that, and heaven may just pause and wait because God might be saying, you're asking for this, and I'm offering this. Which would you choose? 
throughout the teachings of Paul, Paul uses the phrase, Christ in me, five times. 165 times he uses the phrase, us in him. I'm begging you. Sounding like the Apostle Paul in the King James, I beseech you to take what Paul is emphasizing. Us being able to be re-engaged in union with Christ. That is where your life exists. You were banished from the garden, just like Adam was. We were banished from the very presence of Christ himself. Listen to the story of the resurrection according to John's gospel. And Jesus came into the room that was locked for fear of the Jews. And the first words he said was, peace be to you. And then he says these words, as the Father has sent me, I wish I had time to go through a, a Greek word study here. As the Father has sent me, just so you know, the passage in Genesis chapter 3 where it says God has banished them, here's the word, sent them out. Here's what the word in John 20 says. As the Father has sent me, so I now send you. The banishment in the garden has now ended, and the sentness in the kingdom has now been ushered in. Listen very carefully. And then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Listen. The word breathed is not a negative word as it might be in our context. We say breathed. Jesus, don't you know that tic-tac hasn't even been invented yet and you're breathing on people? The word breathed is the exact same word that occurs in the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 2 where God actually takes his mouth and puts it over Adam's faith face and breathes his breath into theirs. I'm not sure what you're really hungry for. You may be hungry for the very least I need to do to get to heaven. Can I beg you to reject that and ask the question, what is the most God wants to provide me with? And he wants to provide you with union with him. A new wedding, a wedding that took place in the garden originally, and then Adam and Eve chose another spouse. Choose a new wedding, but you're not ready for a wedding until you first die. You must die to yourself and die to sin. Then you can be raised to everlasting life. Anna, I'm going to ask that you would come back and come to the piano. She's going to lead us in a closing chorus. 
Can I read these few words to you? We have been crucified with him, the book of Galatians. We have been buried with him, the book of Romans. We have been raised with him, the book of Colossians. We have been seated with him in the heavenly realms, Ephesians chapter 2. Each of those words, crucified with, buried with, raised with, seated with, are brand new Greek words. Paul made them up as he was trying to explain to his churches what it meant to be in relationship with Jesus. It is not to have your sins forgiven. It is so much more. He is begging you to allow him to use these new words to express to you the incredible love that God has for you. He does not just want to forgive you of your sins. He wants to recreate you into the image of the only begotten Son. And then, and then you can be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. 